of all of the things that the world may say, God has the last word on what can change hearts and lives forever. Easter celebrates that Jesus is alive, and you and your family are invited to celebrate with us. Learn all about Passion Week and Easter services at mcgregor.net. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There, our Genesis foundation sprang from the will and word of the great I Am. Woven deep into these foundations are rich truths of God and man, sin and righteousness, life and death, and everything else of ultimate consequence. What God started in Genesis is now settled and completed in Christ Jesus. I would guess that many of you remember that on the morning of February 6th, just four weeks ago, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake devastated an area in the Middle East. It's along what is the southeastern border of Turkey and the northern border of Syria. And the quake lasted for 80 seconds and the body count is now 50,000 men, women, and children. It happened in the early hours of the morning while most people were sleeping. And while that breaks our hearts, I hope that after eight weeks of studying the book of Genesis, we know where that disaster stems from. Friends, it's a sober reminder of the consequence of sin. As we saw several weeks ago when we were in Genesis 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, stopped trusting in God's word and instead transgressed his clear command. And they sinned and when they did, they fell. And as Romans 8 explains, all of creation fell as well. Animals, the weather, and tectonic plates, just to name a few. And since the fall, all creation is now subjected to futility. We're a fallen people who live in a fallen world where people die. But we deserve death. It is the consequence of sin. If there was no sin, there would be no death. Recently, many of you have shared with my wife and I your condolences in the wake of my dad's death. And I just want to say we are grateful to this church for your prayers and for your kindness. But that too was a very personal reminder of the consequence of sin. See, when we hear of a particular person's death or 50,000 people's death or even 150,000 people, which by the way is how many people die on this planet every day. When we hear that, all of that is a consequence of sin. And friends, that's what the flood is in Genesis chapter 7. There's really no clever or lighthearted way to deal with what the sovereign God of the universe does in this chapter. And I will warn you this morning that if you don't see sin as a serious matter, you won't understand God's purpose in Genesis chapter seven. And you might even be tempted to apologize for what you read in Genesis seven today. We often say around here at McGregor that God does all things for his own glory and for our good. And the flood is no different. That's still true, even in the flood. So 
let's turn together in our Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter seven. Now, if you weren't with us last Sunday in Genesis six, Pastor Mark covered the run-up to the flood and we saw two big things in that particular chapter. One was the degradation of mankind. Sin was spiraling downward in appalling ways, so much so that in Genesis 6, 6, the Bible says that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And it goes on to say that mankind's sinful condition grieved the heart of God. The second thing that we saw in Genesis 6 was God's announcement of the flood. His coming judgment upon mankind for their sin. And so Genesis 7 is when the judgment falls. It's when we get a somber reminder about the consequence of sin. And I believe that there are four important observations that we should not miss in Genesis chapter 7 today. So let's begin reading. Genesis 7, let's begin in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and female, and a pair of animals that are not clean, male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heaven, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. The first observation we see here in this passage, number one on your outline, is the subtlety of God's grace. The subtlety of God's grace. We, we saw last Sunday the explicit statement in the text that Noah found favor with God. And that's the clearest articulation of God's grace to this point in the Bible. But we also see God's grace in chapter seven, but it's more subtle. Over the past couple of Sundays, we have estimated that the population of the planet at this time could have very well been around a billion people. And there are some mathematical formulas that bear that out. But whether it's millions of people or a billion people, it's a massive number of people who are about to experience the wrath of God against their sin. And it's so easy in a passage like this to be disparaging of God's judgment, to sort of put God on the stand and interrogate him for the harshness that we think he's up to in here. But friends, we must remember that our sin is an enormous treason against a holy God. And he's not obligated to spare anybody from his judgment. But his grace is in chapter seven. It's there because even though all of humanity has sinned, and by the way, no, that includes Noah and his family as well. But even so, God gave Noah something. What he gave him was a gracious command. Letter A on your outline is a gracious command. And that's in verse one. Look at verse one in your Bibles with me. Look at what it says. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household. Now that's subtle, but verse one is a gracious command by God. The, the, the Hebrew word for go here means to enter into. So the command here is actually a gracious invitation that Noah and his family would be spared. That's what God is commanding them. But why was it Noah? Well, last Sunday in chapter six, verse nine, God proclaimed that Noah was blameless. And here in verse one, he says he's righteous. And that's not normal. 
See, Noah's righteousness was foreign to him, just as it is for all of us who are in Christ today. The imputation of God's righteousness is his gracious gift to us. It's not something that we muster up ourselves. That's self-righteousness. And Jesus rails against self-righteousness. But when God saves a sinner, he gives to that sinner his righteousness. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is all about. So our incredibly long rap sheet of sin amazingly gets replaced by the record of Christ's perfect obedience. And what that does in us is what it did in Noah. It created within him a manner of living that was very different than the world in which he lived. It set Noah apart from other people. And it demonstrated by the way Noah lived that he trusted in God. How about you? How about me? You know, some of us try really, really hard to be normal, to fit in, to be discreet about our faith, to not rock the boat, pardon the pun. But the world doesn't need those of us who claim the name of Christ to be normal. We're not normal. Like Noah, we too have been radically changed by a gracious invitation to find refuge from the judgment that is to come. And for the dads in the room, do you notice in verse one who else benefited from the grace that God showed Noah? Look at what it says. God says, you and all your household. I'll tell you this, I know we typically get wowed about the miracle of the animals getting on the ark two by two, and that was supernatural, not taking anything away from that. But as a husband and a dad, I'd also say it was a miraculous work of God for Noah's wife and kids to follow him onto that ark. Amen? I'm just saying there's subtle examples of God's grace all over this passage. So God gave a gracious command, but he also gave a gracious announcement. Let her be on your outline. A gracious announcement. And, and by the way, let me mention that this week on the podcast, I will deal with the reason behind God's instruction of bringing both clean and unclean animals, just FYI. But in verse one, we saw a gracious command, and now in verse four, there's a gracious announcement. And it too is subtle. Look at it with me in verse four. God says, for in seven days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. That is God announcing his judgment but it ain't gonna rain for seven days. Did you catch that? And see, we see this pattern often throughout the Old Testament. God announces his coming judgment, and, or he uses a prophet to do that, and then there's a period of time before his judgment comes. For example, the Ninevites experienced this in the book of Jonah. Jonah came preaching a message for them to repent of their sin and if they didn't, God's judgment would come in 40 days. But it didn't take that long because the people heard the message of repentance and responded to it. Same things here with Noah. Anytime the judgment of God is announced, it's a demonstration of God's grace because it gave the people more time to repent a full week, that's what's going on in verse four. Noah and probably Methuselah 
had already been preaching that the judgment of God was coming and that people needed to repent of their sin and trust in God's deliverance. And even after all those years of them preaching, God still announces in verse four, in seven days, everybody's gonna get wet. But that means you still have seven days. See, I think it's important for us to notice that this gracious announcement is a finite opportunity, just as it is today. I'm very thankful that my dad was a believer in Christ. But you and I know plenty of people who aren't. They live around us. They work around us. We're related to them. And like us, all of them have a finite amount of time on this planet, which in turn means we have a finite opportunity to share the good news with them. And that good news is that God has graciously made a way for sinners to find refuge from his judgment. If we're gonna live missionally at McGregor, yes, we can do that in London. But we can also do it at our workplace and in our neighborhoods. Living missionally means here, there, and everywhere. So the first observation in Genesis 7 is the subtlety of God's grace. And the second is the beauty of Noah's obedience. Number two on your outline, the beauty of Noah's obedience. That's found in verses five through nine. So let's jump back to the text. Read it with me in your Bibles, beginning in verse five. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. There's a beauty in Noah's obedience here. And we see that right off the bat with his wise response. Letter A on your outline, be a wise response. That's in verse five. Look at your Bibles. Verse five, it states, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Now, as is common in Hebrew literature, we've got some repetition going on here because that statement was already made in chapter six. And of course, repetition is one of the ways that we learn the truth of God's word. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. That's a wise response, friends. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm getting older. And the one thing that I've noticed as I get older, among many things, is the more attractive it is for me to obey God's word. Now, I didn't say me obeying God's word was easy because it's not. But obedience is more appealing to me now than when God first saved me at the age of 13 years old. Does that make sense? Because the difference now, more often than not, is I see the wisdom of God's commands. And that's just a byproduct of sanctification as we grow and follow Christ. Because as we grow in Christ, we come to a point where we've learned primarily through the consequences of our own sinfulness we learn that there is wisdom in obeying God. Noah's not perfect, but he has come to see obedience as a beautiful thing. Psalm 112, verse one, shouts out, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Brothers and sisters, is that true of you? 
Do you delight in God's commandments? There's something very beautiful about that. And if you're a parent, showing the beauty of obedience to your kids is a responsibility and a privilege. And it's most effective coming from you as the parent. And we do that not only by translation as we teach our children the word of God, but we also do that by demonstration as we live our lives obedient to the Lord. Noah's response was to do all God had commanded him, and that was wise. But Noah also shows a resolute posture in this. Let her be on your outline as a resolute posture. That's in verse seven. Look at your Bibles in verse seven. Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Okay, so think about it. Back in verse one, God had commanded Noah to do something. Go into the ark. And Noah does that. But he does it with a resolute posture. See, the Hebrew word for escape here in verse seven is interesting. It means to turn your face towards something. And here Noah what he's done is he has intentionally and resolutely turned his face toward the ark and away from the godlessness of the world. Hebrews eleven seven describes Noah this way. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. But by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. See, there's an intentionality in Noah's life about what God had commanded him to do. And if anyone on the planet should be intentional, it's a Christian. We're to live with a resolute posture of obedience to God, because, not because of the confidence we have in ourselves, but because our confidence in our great God. And dads, did you notice that Noah's resolute posture affected his family? Once again, they benefited from his leadership. Now dads, I know it feels like I'm picking on you, but I'm preaching to myself as well this morning. But what is the posture of our hearts? Are you and I trying to get away with the bare minimum of leading our family spiritually? Or are we resolute in the role that God has specifically given to us as dads? I don't know what your punch list looks like, brothers, but does it include shepherding your family well? A wise and resolute man will turn his face to God's provision and will delight in God's commandments. So the observations so far have been the subtlety of God's grace, the beauty of obedience. And now, number three on your outline, is the certainty of God's judgment. And that is found in verses 10 through 16. So let's take a look at those verses. Verse 10, chapter seven. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. 
on the very same day, Noah and his son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, all of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. You know the old saying that there's two things that are certain in life. What are they? Death and taxes, that's right. But actually there's a third certainty and that's God's judgment. For the unbeliever, there is a final judgment of sin. And for the believer, while we're not judged for our sin because Christ has taken our penalty, there's still a judgment of rewards for the believer. So whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, there will be a judgment, although they are, have two very different outcomes. That's why Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. Friends, there's a final and future judgment for every person but one of the things that is so helpful about the Bible is that as the narrative unfolds, we get these glimpses of God's final judgment against sin. We get a glimpse of what it's gonna look like. And the flood may be the most clear until you get to the book of Revelation. So here in Genesis 7, what we see is a fulfilled promise, letter A on your outline. A fulfilled promise. There's a certainty of God's judgment because God keeps his promises. It really is that simple. Look at verse 11 and 12. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were open and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Most people remember the 40 days and nights of rain, but for the flood, there were two sources of water. Yes, the rain falling from the sky, but also were these subterranean waters coming from below the earth, the fountains of the great deep, as Moses describes them in verse 11. And as fascinating as that is, don't miss the obvious. And that is verses 11 and 12 are a fulfillment of a promise. God made a promise in chapter six, verse 17 that we looked at last week, which is everything that is on the earth shall die. God made that promise and he kept it. And he kept that promise even though only eight people out of a billion took it seriously. I read one author this past week that found over 7,000 promises from God to man in the Bible. Now, I didn't double check him, but that wasn't a complete shock to me when I read it, if it's accurate. Because God has no trouble keeping his promises. Brothers and sisters, our very salvation is tied up on God fulfilling his promises. Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold fast to the confession of our faith, the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is what? Faithful. The reliability of our great God keeping his word means judgment is certain. The certainty of God's judgment was evident by a fulfilled promise, but it's also evident by a secure declaration. That's next on your outline, a secure declaration. As we've already noticed, there's some 
phrasing in this chapter that repeats phrases from Genesis 6. But there's definitely one phrase here in this passage that's new, and it's at the very end of verse 16. Look at it with me. And the Lord shut him in. (laughs) It's fascinating to me that not even the smallest detail gets missed in the Bible. Noah and his family had obeyed the Lord, and the Lord shut them in. And that begs the question, where does Noah's security come from? Their security came from the same God who secures you today if you're trusting in Christ for salvation. I really do think verse 16 is an early example of the eternal security for the believer. I might be wrong, but the security didn't come from Noah's boat building skills. God held that boat together. Their security didn't come from Noah's long history of piloting boats. He was kind of one and done, right? And their security didn't come from the sanity of this whole plan because from a human perspective, it was not sane. No, what the Bible does here in describing this historical event is it gives us a declaration about the security God gives all those who are trusting in the vehicle he has provided to spare them from his wrath. And like everything else in the Old Testament, the ark points forward to a vehicle of deliverance from the wrath of God, and that vehicle is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the one in whom we find refuge now. From the day God shut them in, it would be a year and 10 days until the Lord told them it was safe to go out of the ark. Can you imagine a year and 10 days? My family can't even make it to Orlando without getting out of the car. That's amazing. But God shut them in to secure them and safely deliver them through his wrath. There's a certainty in God's judgment. But there's also a certainty in the security that God gives his children. So we have the subtlety of God's grace. We have the beauty of obedience. We have the certainty of God's coming judgment. And the final observation that we should not miss in this passage is the extent of God's judgment. Number four on your outline is the extent of God's judgment. And that's the final verses, beginning in verse 17. Let's look at it together. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains covering them 15 cubits deep and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on earth the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man, animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens. You getting the point? They they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. And the waters prevailed on earth 150 days. So how bad was it? pretty bad. More awful than we could ever imagine. 
And I, I don't know about you, but I believe in my lifetime, the worst natural disaster was the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004. And if you remember that, it's where an earthquake under the Indian Ocean created tsunami waves up to 30 feet. And it caused widespread destruction in 12 different countries. In the end, 225,000 people died. That's staggering. But if our estimates on the population of the planet in Noah's day are correct, then the Boxing Day tsunami is 0.02% of the, those who died in the flood in Genesis 7. And although that's difficult to comprehend, the thing we must keep in mind is that it wasn't merely a natural event. It was a providential event. Letter A on your outline, a providential event. Once the rains began and the subterranean waters erupt from below the earth, the extent of God's judgment here is mind-boggling. See, modern people like us, we, we like to use categories like a freak storm or an unexpected disaster. But with a sovereign God, that's never the case. It wasn't the case then, and it's not the case now. My wife and I have been in Southwest Florida almost 21 years, and our first hurricane was Charlie. Anybody remember Charlie? <laughs> I remember watching the weather report on the local news that Friday morning, and the meteorologists were in a bit of a panic because Charlie had taken, quote, an unexpected turn. No, it didn't. It wasn't unexpected. It jogged to the right, just as the Lord of creation providentially intended it to. Now, certainly for us, many things in life can be unexpected, but that's never the case with God. He providentially directs for his purpose everything that we would consider a disaster. Notice the phrase, the waters prevailed. That phrase is used for four times in verse 18, 19, 20, and 24. And the Hebrew word for prevailed is actually a military term meaning to triumph in victory. Let that sink in. It's the same word that's used in Exodus 14 when Moses is describing the parted waters of the Red Sea came back in and covered the chariots and the horsemen of Pharaoh's army. And the Bible says not one of them survived. See, when we talk about God's providence, we're talking about God's wise purpose in all that he does. That's the difference. That's different than God's sovereignty. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we're talking about his right and his authority to rule over all things. But see, the manner in which God rules over everything is always wise. It's never arbitrary. It's never random. There is wisdom in all that God does, and that's God's providence. So let me ask you a question. When it says the waters prevailed here, does God have the right and authority to cause the waters to prevail over the lives of a billion people? Does he? Yes, he does. And we should never be flipping about that. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. 
And that includes the rains, that includes the subterranean waters, and that includes the humans that are perishing in this flood. Again, in his sovereignty, he has the right to do with his creation as he sees fits. But in his providence, he does what he does to bring about his wise purposes. And the flood's no different. It's a providential event. Not only was it a providential event, it was a universal event. Verse 21 plainly says, all flesh died. The text could not be more clear or simple. All means all. And I will echo what Pastor Mark said last Sunday, that Genesis 7 is the record of a global flood, not a local one. Because in Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, we have the promise of a global flood. As God said, he would destroy all people and animals from the face of the land. And today, as we study Genesis 7, verse 21, it says all flesh died. Once again, promise made, promise kept. See, universal sin brought about universal judgment. And anything less than a global flood would not have executed universal judgment. And even in verse 20, when it makes the point that the waters prevailed above the mountains to such an extent that the ark could float right over them with room to spare. I don't think there's a better indication of the universality of the flood than verses 20 and 21. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but how's that possible? It's possible because he's God and he's great in power and might. And the right response to a God like that is a holy fear and grateful worship. Oh, it's real easy in 2023 to have a false view that God's your buddy, that he's the big man upstairs, that he's the, he's the laid back grandpa in the sky. That's not the God of the Bible. No, God is holy. And his coming judgment will universally condemn every sinner except those who take refuge in the ark he has provided. And that ark is Jesus Christ. Friends, this is a just result. Last on your outline, a just result. Whether we like it or not, verse 23 is what it is. And it captures the somber nature of what has taken place in the flood. Look at it with me. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Only Noah was left and those who were in the ark with him. This is a just result. And if you're uncomfortable with that, keep this in mind. Anytime you see someone die in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, or today, regardless of how they died, what you're seeing is a sinner getting what a sinner deserves, and that's death. There's only one exception to that rule, and his name is Jesus. But for everybody else, we are all sinners, and God is just. And Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is what? Death, death that's right. If you want to understand the Bible, the baseline you got to get right is that because of our sin, we deserve death and the judgment of God in hell for eternity. That's how serious and offensive and rebellious and heinous our sin is to a holy God. It's also why his judgment is just. 
And the only question that matters today is as a sinner, are you trusting in God's provision to spare you from his judgment? Are you trusting in the vehicle he has provided, God's ark, Christ? Jonathan Edwards, the greatest American theologian, simply said one time, salvation is found only by fleeing to Christ and believing in him. If you've never done that, we would implore you to do that today and not wait. To turn from your sin and to trust Christ alone to save you. God's gracious invitation to you is the same as it was to Noah in verse one. Go into the ark.